Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. COVID-19 has taken more than two and a half million lives and destroyed the global economy. Epidemiologists warned that a pandemic was imminent, but it took most of the world completely by surprise. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. Coming up, is there a way to predict future pandemics? I believe the combination of early warning and this rapid platform technologies for vaccines could stop a pandemic from emerging and put something out within the first 100 days or less. And how can test and trace systems be improved? When the epidemiologists tell you that there's a pandemic coming, don't take a month to figure out what to do. You need to know what to do the day they tell you that. In 1859, in late October, a British steam clipper called the Royal Charter was almost home after a two-month journey from Australia. But an hour from port, the ship was struck with 100-mile winds in the Irish Sea. Over the next few hours, the ship was smashed apart on the rocky shoreline. 450 people died. The storm might have remained another tragic tale of souls lost at sea, but it gave Robert Fitzroy, an officer in the Royal Navy, an idea. What if you could build an early warning system for storms? Today, weather forecasts are taken for granted, but at the time, scientists and officials were skeptical of Fitzroy's dream. Surely weather was far too complicated to be predicted in any meaningful way. Now, more than 150 years later, a very similar conversation is happening. Can researchers model and forecast disease outbreaks? Given the sheer number of people, pathogens, and the amount of mixing and movement involved, it would seem to be a tall order. But predicting the chaotic thermodynamics of the Earth's atmosphere also sounded improbable to most experts when Fitzroy began his work. So a surveillance system, I think, would work having two segments. In one segment, you would look at people. You would try and understand people's immune systems, people's general health, and what kinds of viruses and other infections are sort of spreading through a population. And then on the other side, you would look for new threats. Alok Jha is a science correspondent for The Economist and host of The Jab podcast. By new threats, I mean viruses and pathogens that have never infected people before and which could cause huge outbreaks. SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, is an example of that. And those threats come from essentially animal populations. So you'd have to monitor both sides of this to get any sort of early warning system working. How would such a system be set up? It would have to be global. You'd have to have research labs dedicated to this. And there would have to be a way to share this information. Explain more. 
It's a huge, huge, huge challenge. But there is a plan. I've been speaking to Jessica Metcalf and Michael Mina, who are two scientists in the United States, who come up with an idea called the Global Immunological Observatory that kind of covers how you might go about organizing such a massive recording system. I would like to see a world where, imagine if somebody has a child and their child comes home sick and they want to know, you know, rightly so, does my kid have flu? Does my kid have coronavirus? Does my kid have rhinovirus or adenovirus? What if we could just open up our phones and put in our zip code and be able to understand, hey, there's a lot of rhinovirus in your community the last couple of weeks, but we haven't seen any flu and we haven't seen any coronavirus. Well, then it's a really, really good chance that your kid just has rhinovirus, let them go to school. But you know what, if your kid has flu-like symptoms and you can open your phone as a parent and it says, hey, there's a lot of flu in your community today, then maybe keeping your kid home without even getting a test for them. You know, we can get likelihoods that somebody is positive for flu and we can help curb spread. Practically speaking, what you would want to do is take hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of blood samples from people all over a country and then analyse each one of them for potentially hundreds of thousands of different antibodies and other bits and pieces in the blood to understand how those people are being infected by pathogens. There are things that we know that are very well defined. So I could tell you, for example, whether you were immune to measles or not. I could probably tell you what pandemic strains of flu you'd been exposed to or not. There are other pieces alongside this, which are sort of very much things that I think we would get better at knowing if we were to have a global immunological observatory as well. So there's a whole suite of different layers of individual information that it tells us about you particularly, but also about what had happened to the populations you were living in. Had there been a measles outbreak? Has there been good vaccination? Was there a flu pandemic? And then if you integrate those up to the population level, you get information that's extremely important to public health. That is a lot of blood to be analyzing every single day. How would that actually work? In the ideal scenario, what Jessica Metcalf and Michael Mina are suggesting is not that you would have to do blood samples to get access to places. It's more of what they call an observatory. So first of all, they would be looking at blood that's already in blood banks or blood that's discarded from clinical settings. So blood that's already taken for whatever reason. And yes, there could be some biases in that. But then you would supplement that with volunteers who would donate maybe a drop of blood. That's it. Every month. You could even send people kits in the post where they could just take a drop of blood from their fingertip, put it onto a piece of paper and then send that back. It wouldn't stop you from doing anything on a day-to-day basis and it would all be voluntary. Another more sophisticated mechanism is to look at hospital records. And yes, people have to give permission and there's potentially privacy violations that could happen there. There's lots of information in hospitals about uh, outbreaks that are happening that, that are sort of locked within the walls of that hospital. What another group of scientists are suggesting is that we try and pool together uh, hospital data. Now, to get around the privacy issues, instead of pooling actual patient records, what you could do is write an algorithm that could be sent to hospitals across a region. And that algorithm just is a sort of search string, essentially. It says, look for people in your hospital that are this age group, have these symptoms and have presented in the last 24 hours. The algorithm would run on the computers within a hospital, take the information out and then just report back anonymized data. Now, these sorts of systems, if they'd been running a year ago, they would have detected that coronavirus infections were on the rise. Not SARS-CoV-2, the COVID-19 coronavirus, because obviously they wouldn't have known what that is, but they would have seen other coronavirus infections increasing. And so it would have given some early warning that something odd was going on. Is it not looking for a needle in a haystack that one knows exists as opposed to the real threats in society that one is unaware of? 
you can only monitor for things you know about. You can't detect a virus you've never seen before in people. So the next frontier is to take samples from animals. Animals that also have many hundreds of thousands of viruses that don't infect humans yet, but which could infect humans. And that's where most new diseases come from. SARS-CoV-2, we think, came from bats, possibly via an intermediary animal. Bats, in fact, have hundreds of coronaviruses that don't infect humans, but, you know, they could spill over at any point. So we need to be monitoring those animals. All sorts of creatures that live near humans all over the world. Okay, so how would one actually go about doing this? Because we can imagine an unlimited number of dots that one's trying to connect. That sounds like a fool's errand. There are estimates of how many viruses might be out there in the world and estimates of how many might spill over, given what we have already discovered. Those numbers aren't infinite, but they are in the high hundreds of thousands, possibly a million. That's a lot. At the moment, though, we don't know about any of them. So you've got to start somewhere. And I think that proposals on the table include the Global Virome Project, which is an extension of a project that's been running for about a decade, which does do this. It goes into populations of animals all over the world and takes blood samples from all sorts of creatures and just sequences everything within those blood samples, any viruses, any bacteria, and just catalogues it. We have the data capabilities, sequencing technology is very cheap now. We have the capability of doing this. It's a massive enterprise. But given the amount of damage that an unknown virus can cause, even having a little bit of a prediction, a little bit of a window, by sequencing and understanding a small percentage of what's out there is better than having nothing at all. Alec? Thank you very much. You're very welcome, Ken. Better surveillance could help researchers forecast future outbreaks, and it could also prevent dangerous variants of SARS-CoV-2 from spreading further. The ultimate weapon in the fight against the coronavirus might actually be data. Genomic surveillance is a tool, when combined with other types of surveillance and data sets, that will tell us very quickly that something novel, something dangerous has emerged maybe jumped from animals to humans and is spreading so we can understand it and get in front of it and trap it before it causes a pandemic. Rick Bright is the Senior Vice President for Pandemic Prevention and Response at the Rockefeller Foundation. Last year, as an official at the U.S. Department of Health, he filed a whistleblower complaint against the Trump administration, calling its response to the pandemic dangerous. Today, Dr. Bright's team is planning a surveillance system which could be vital in defeating COVID-19 and helping to prepare the world for the next pandemic. We want to be able to detect a novel emerging pathogen anywhere in the world and have everyone around the world have the same information as quickly as possible that something new and something dangerous has emerged and guide politicians and public health officials and individuals to responsible, quick response behaviors to squelch that before it spreads globally. How would that work? You would be collecting a lot of samples of different viruses or bacterial or fungi organisms. Some of those samples could be collected from the sewage system. Some of those samples could be collected from wet markets and animal populations. And some of those samples could be collected from traditional clinical visits or in outbreak sites where we see a number of humans suddenly become infected or um, have fevers of unknown origin. You can collect a lot of those samples and feed those into a database that combines that sequence information from those pathogens with other information about the population or the environment, wherever those symptoms are emerging. And we can combine all of those various data sets and very quickly tell you that there is something novel and it's occurring in this population or in combination with this other 
outbreak that we see. What do you actually envision? Would it be big centralized labs across countries, or would there be a sequencer in every hospital and clinic, and that they would be doing the sequencing and the analysis, and then uploading the information to a central repository? For decades, I think we have tried the big centralized approach, and the big centralized approach is subject to bottlenecks. The big centralized approach generally means that central organization or entity is under the management of a political system of a government. In times of crises, in particular, not all governments communicate quickly or openly with each other. So, a new paradigm would be if you think of a crowdsourcing approach. Where we have more of the sequencing technologies in academic labs around the world, if we could reduce and continue to reduce the technologies for sequencing, so more centers could sequence and upload and share that information into common databases, then we would have greater depth and greater breadth of that information more rapidly. A lot of governments believe they can do a great job in managing this information, but I'm also very aware that the pandemic outbreaks we've seen in the last 100 years, this centralized approach hasn't worked perfectly for us. What about privacy? This sounds like a very intrusive system. How should it be designed to ensure that privacy is protected, not just in democracies, but in countries that don't share democratic values? Privacy is always at the forefront of any type of surveillance. The type of surveillance that we are imagining would not need to rely on the most personal information from an individual. We just need to know that something new has emerged. It would be nice to know that it came from a specific population or a social group or an ethnic background, so we can investigate and be most helpful quickly in that community. But I don't need to know that it came from an individual. To be able to do the type of analysis we need to do for an early warning system, and I do think it will take some time for people to understand that the information that they have or contain could be used for a global good. So this type of early warning system isn't just for a global pandemic; it would be for any type of an emergent public health event that could happen anywhere in the world. This could be used in a number of different ways to watch for the emergence or spread of antimicrobial resistance for drug-resistant bacteria. We only have a matter of minutes or hours in most cases of a bioterrorism attack, so having this alert system to tell us where something has happened could get the forces out as quickly as possible to treat people and stop it from hurting others. I believe the combination of early warning. And this rapid platform technology for vaccines could stop a pandemic from emerging and put something out within the first 100 days or less. Dr. Bright, thank you very much. Ken, thank you. It's been a pleasure. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code Listen to get fifty dollars off your purchase of five hundred dollars or more. That's code Listen at bluenile.com for fifty dollars off your purchase. Bluenile.com code Listen. Testing and contact tracing are crucial tools in reducing the spread of an epidemic. Many East Asian countries had robust testing systems in place and used data like financial transactions to trace citizens. Western governments acted much slower and shied away from an invasive approach. 
The Economist technology correspondent Hal Hudson looks to past viral outbreaks to see what lessons can be learned to help prepare for future pandemics. The outbreak of a new infectious disease is the opening scene of a whodunit. In 1976, epidemiologists spent months pulling apart a hotel in Philadelphia in search of whatever had caused the deaths of two dozen members of the American Legion. There are more deaths in Pennsylvania from a disease still not identified. The deadly new bacterium, which was eventually found in the hotel's air conditioning system, was later named Legionella. Another tragic medical mystery arose in the 1980s from a family of viruses that hadn't been seen before. It is a deadly disease and there is no known cure. The virus can be passed during sexual intercourse with an infected person. It took years and a lot of very acrimonious scientific argument among epidemiologists and virologists to blame the terrible and varied symptoms of AIDS on underlying infection by HIV. If you ignore AIDS, it could be the death of you. So don't die of ignorance. But COVID-19 is different. This time around, the mystery was solved almost as soon as it had begun. Scientists had learned valuable lessons from the past coronavirus pandemics, SARS and MERS. As a result, there were already established protocols in place to look for coronavirus infections. RNA molecules were extracted from cell cultures, rewritten as DNA, and then those molecules were sequenced using machines developed in the sequencing boom that followed the Human Genome Project. By January 12, 2020, the world knew its enemy. In terms of the science done, this was all routine. But in terms of impact, it was enormous. The first AIDS tests were not available until four years after medicine became aware of the condition they tested for. For SARS, it took six months. But for SARS-CoV-2, procedures for testing were published just 11 days after its genome was sequenced. We had, prior to March of 2020, never performed a viral diagnostic of any type, sequencing, PCR, whatever, in my lab. Stacy Gabriel runs genetic sequencing operations at the Broad Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Before the epidemic, the lab was set up to do genetic sequencing, research designed to learn more about diseases like cancer and schizophrenia. But last year, as the pandemic was just beginning, Stacy's team managed to repurpose their entire lab into a massive COVID-19 testing site, although they began with a much more modest goal. When we started, we sort of started to say, how could we do 100 a day? How could we do 1,000 a day? 100 to 1,000 was, I would say, sheer brute force, dealing with a lot of messiness, literally messiness of how tubes showed up at the lab. With They were sometimes leaking. There were paper requisition forms. Doctors wanted results by fax, believe it or not. But we did because we had to. But that wasn't going to get much beyond 1,000 or so a day. The next big move we made was to set our sights on 100,000 a day. Well, our institute director asked for a million a day, but I pushed him off and said, let's, 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 let's go for 100,000. We created a, I would say, highly industrial sort of focused way of receiving packages and opening them, scanning the tube in and putting it into a robot and invested in a lot of new robotics and automation. So the lab looked very different with our 100,000 capacity. It's really quite something to see. This pivot from research lab to testing giant was hugely successful. But why did the burden fall on laboratories that were never designed for this in the first place? 
A lot of the traditional labs, the ones you thought should have been doing this, were using systems that were very constrained, sort of these black boxes, these big behemoth pathology test machines where you put a cartridge in and you press a single button and you get an answer out. Those work wonderful when they're working at the scale they were built for. Where they don't work is when they run out of cartridges. There was a scale problem. I think, you know, the manufacturers weren't ready for this. And so when you can't get the cartridge, you have zero options about what to do with that machine. So you had to build something new. Hal, it sounds like while previous coronavirus outbreaks like SARS and MERS enabled scientists to get a test for COVID-19 very quickly, in America at least, the testing infrastructure just wasn't there. What lessons can be learned from this pandemic about how to better prepare for future outbreaks? The systems that the mostly Western countries that haven't done so well on this have been using for testing and tracing have not been ideal for the purpose. The technology that was readily available that we discussed with Stacy just now, which is PCR tests, everyone was in a huge rush to get as many PCR tests up and running as fast as possible. And that inherently meant centralization. It meant building great big labs that did hundreds of thousands of tests every day. That's all good. That's needed to happen. But the problem with it is that it creates essentially traffic jams and it means that the test results are delivered out of what is known as clinical context. And the way that testing is done in the East Asian countries that have done better at this and that have a history of dealing with a similar disease in SARS and MERS is that the testing is much more distributed. You don't go and get tested and then have your sample sent to a gigantic central lab. The tests are done in a much more regional way. And that means that the turnaround time is faster, most simply because you don't have to courier the sample all the way up the Eastern seaboard in the case of Stacy's stuff when she's testing things from New York. And and it also means that when you distribute the testing infrastructure more, you don't get these huge, huge traffic jams of all these millions of samples trying to go through the same infrastructure. When you distribute it, the traffic problems are ameliorated. And all of this means that you can turn tests around in single digit hours instead of a day or a day and a bit. One of the benefits of the test was that it was created so quickly. In fact, it's fortunate that happened, especially in comparison to the four-year wait for a test for HIV AIDS. So what are the chances that a test for the next big virus will be created just as quickly? There's definitely things that you can learn about how quickly this one was created. In some ways, there was a bit of luck involved because some of the technologies and infrastructure for making that test quickly had already been developed for SARS. And just because that happened in East Asian countries didn't mean that that couldn't spread around the world pretty quickly, and it did spread around the world pretty quickly. I think that it is fair to say that there are some fundamental technologies in place now which will facilitate the rapid development of testing for a large number of future pandemics. Is there a plausible pathogen that emerges in the future that creates a pandemic like COVID that is not so easy to test for? That's absolutely possible. But there are tools in place that we kind of make that less likely. And in many ways, the experience with COVID just kind of goes to show. Tell me, what are those new technologies that you're referring to? 
One of them is making the process of doing a PCR test, which is what most of the tests in the world have been so far, doing a PCR test quicker and cheaper and smaller even. Uh, and instead of heating and cooling an entire space, what they do is they move the sample back and forth between a hot space and a cold space. They pump it back and forth. And that basically just means you don't have to wait for your thing to heat up and cool down. It's already hot and it's already cold and you just go back and forth, back and forth. And that massively reduces the cycle time and that's super basic, right? But that's the kind of innovation that will make a big difference. It also means you can do this with like microfluidics and miniaturize the whole device. And you're starting to get the slightly tricorderish dream of spit in a cup. And this will test for DNA in the sample in minutes, maybe even. So much for testing. What about contact tracing? It seems like that did not do so well. Contact tracing is a much more difficult thing in many ways because it is social. It's about dealing with people and it's about incentives for people to do stuff. Technologically, though, getting speed and coverage to be as good as they can be is an incredibly complex problem that involves loads of different factors. In a way, because most of the Western countries never really were in a position to contain the spread of the virus with contact tracing, because by the time the UK, for instance, started doing contact tracing properly, they already had too many cases to really deal with it. It's hard to know exactly what the lessons are in those countries because they sort of haven't had a chance to do things properly. I guess the ultimate question becomes what should governments do to prepare for the next pandemic? Have a plan in place that you can start doing very, very quickly. No one would say that Stacy's lab ought to be kept as a pathogenic disease testing lab in perpetuity just in case there's another pandemic. But what you can learn from what Stacy has done is a recipe for very quickly turning spaces into pathogenic testing labs. Stacy herself said that they've never done this before. They had never tested for a viral genome. And yet here they are, one of the biggest viral genome testing labs in America. Everybody should be learning from that and figuring out what the recipes are to respond quickly. And responding quickly is just the most important thing. When the epidemiologists tell you that there's a pandemic coming, don't take a month to figure out what to do. You need to know what to do the day they tell you that. Hal, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ken. Good to talk to you. And you can read Hal's full piece on global efforts to test, track, and trace in the latest technology quarterly in The Economist. To make sure you get every TQ and plenty more, take out a subscription. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The show today was produced by William Warren. And don't forget to rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's incredibly important for people to find the show and for the algorithm to promote it to others. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.